0: Hard to Believe is proud to be a part of the Cage Club Podcast Network. To find more of this and other great shows, head to cageclub.me. You can find the show on YouTube by searching Hard to Believe Podcast. If you'd like to support the show, go to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review. Or you can support the show on Patreon by heading to patreon.com slash hardtobelieve. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email me at john at cageclub.me. Or you can find me on Twitter at ProbablyRealJB. That's P R O B A B L Y J B. The show is written and produced by me. Welcome back. In the months since our last episode went live, it feels like the world has become a much different and a darker place. We're going to be spending some time addressing some of the reasons why, including the IPCC report and the situation in Afghanistan as well as some of the requisite fun episodes i like to throw in to keep us all from going completely mad. But we're going to start with a trend that's only become more and more worrying and present since four years ago, when white supremacist Trump supporters terrorized the city of Charlottesville, Virginia, ultimately claiming the life of counter-protester Heather Heyer. It often concerns me that too few people seem to fully appreciate the intersection of American white supremacist movements and Christianity particularly as it relates to what most of us view as the template for white supremacist terror groups, the Ku Klux Klan. And so my first guest of the second half of the season is Dr. Kelly Baker. Dr. Baker is the editor of the feminist newsletter, Women in Higher Education. She's a PhD in Religious Studies, whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the Atlantic, Religion and Politics, the Washington Post, and more. Her books include Grace Period, A Memoir in Pieces, The Zombies Are Coming, The Realities of the Zombie Apocalypse in American Culture, and Final Girl and Other Essays on Grief, Trauma, and Mental Illness. I asked her to join me to discuss her first book, 2011's The Gospel According to the Klan, which explores the rebirth of the Klan in the 1920s as an explicitly Christian movement, and to share her thoughts on what the legacy of the Klan means in the MAGA age. I'm John Brooks, and this is Hard to Believe. Kelly, welcome to Hard to Believe.
1: Hey, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here.
0: I'm very excited to have you. Um, I'm a big fan and admirer of your work, even though I just told you I wasn't going to talk about how great you are um, to your face. I'm doing it. Anyways, uh, I would just like to take a minute to talk a little bit about um, kind of how you got to where you are in terms of your um, academic pursuit, and your areas of expertise. Um, you have a, a PhD in religious history? Is yeah, that, no, is I that mean, the... in
1: religion, but particularly American religious history.
0: Um, why?
1: <laughs> well, no, I know, it's a great question. Um, so <laughs> like, I'll give you the honest answer, which is, and as an undergraduate, um, I was an American studies major, which is basically like a major that just lets you take classes in whatever you want to, mm-hmm. which is, Maybe like great for an undergraduate, but like not great for your job prospects long term. Um, And so what I discovered is when I took religion classes, those were the classes that were the most interesting to me, that I was very fascinated by why humans are doing what they're doing Mm -hmm. and um, why in particular they were doing things in these religious contexts. So those classes I loved because it was like, oh, let's look at the contradictions, right? Let's look at um, what appeals to people. Let's look at what's motivating them. Um, And so I also came from um, very much the Bible belt in the South. So it was even more fascinating for me too, to be like, oh no, like I've lived it, right? Like I've been in it in a way that um, other people in my classes necessarily hadn't been. Um, So I decided to go to graduate school to study American religion in particular, Um, just because Americans, I mean, so wild, so interesting, so contradictory, such a mess, right? In a lot of ways. And I was like, oh, let's, let's see what happens when I get into this. Um, and so I started graduate school thinking I was going to work on like religion and the arts or like, um, religion and the African-American experience or something like that. And, uh, what happened instead <laughs> is that I got super interested in uh, the way that people kind of wanted to study progressive religious groups. You know, they wanted to study folks in the civil rights movement or they wanted to study folks that were like into social justice or these sorts of things. And I, you know, like that's fine. Like, cool. <laughs> um, but one of the things that I noticed is that we were leaving out other groups in those narratives. And so. I decided to work on a group that really, like, pushed us to think about um, the not-so-nice parts of American history. And so I settled on um, the 1920s Klan uh, as my case study. I wanted to look at a group that we label as extremist and put them in the center of those stories we tell about American religion mm-hmm. and see what happens. Um, basically, it was me trying to, like explode the discipline from the inside, which is maybe like not something I should confess to, but it really was my attempt to be like, oh no, I'm just gonna dismantle it all, right? Like I'm just gonna rip it all apart and then see what happens when we try to put it back together.
0: Yeah, so I mean, aside from, uh, I grew up in the Northeast, um, which has its own sort of religious um, identity, you know, and the Bible Belt, obviously has its own as well. Um, aside from that, I think we have we have very similar sort of um, lenses through which we we view these things. Um, I I also, you know, religion for me was also a academic pursuit. Um, you know, I, I wonder though. I mean, having grown up in the in the in the Bible Belt, did you um, have any? Were you raised religious, or or was it something that? Everybody else was, and you worked. Yeah.
1: So we were like not churchgoers. So um, my mom grew up within um, the holiness tradition, which was remarkably conservative. Um, for women, this meant that you had to wear remarkably modest clothing, um, it was very contained what you could and couldn't do. Um, and so in my early years, at least. Uh, We didn't belong to a church. Now, we were still that kind of like culturally Christian, believe in God and Jesus and these sorts of things. So we weren't entirely out of the realm of it, but we weren't like church going folks. Um, And so that meant that Christianity was always something that was kind of fascinating to me Mm -hmm. that I didn't entirely understand, right? Like there are all these people around me who were Christian um who were doing different things involved in different denominations um and a lot of my like younger years through high school years um was me being a missionary object <laughs> right <laughs> you know like people are like oh you don't go to church you should come to my church right of you course. should do this yeah. right yeah. um yeah. you know uh or you know some of them like went in for like the like hard um sell which is like you're going to hell maybe you yeah. want to come and be saved right um and so it meant that I had this very particular experience of being on the outside of this and, and like trying to figure out the motivations and to understand like how to interact with these folks when they, I mean, really they spoke a different language than I did, right? Like I had to kind of learn the terms and learn how to like translate what they were saying um, and these sorts of things. So I think that's where that early interest came from is just me encountering people who um, wanted me to participate in their worldview. Um, and they either did this by like cajoling me kindly (laughs) or being like, you know, (laughs) sup, you're going to hell. Would you like us to do something about that to help you out? Um, and, and so, yeah, so that very much framed like my approach. Um, and I think that's why, um, the academic study of religion was so interesting to me is I was like, what, how did this come about? Right? Like, how does this happen? And, Um, you know what is it particularly about the region that I was in too that kind of led to um, these approaches and and so it's always been kind of fascinating to me um, to see that and and to experience that still right you know um, I live back um, in rural Florida where I grew up now Um, we're back here and um You know, like a question we get often is like, which church do you go to? And we're like, we don't, you know. And then they're like, wait, what? You know. And so
0: we're like super non-denominational.
1: We are totally, yeah, totally non-denominational.
0: Yeah, Uh, way, way (laughs) non-denominational.
1: Um, yeah. So it is like it is a funny thing. Um, you know, just a couple weeks ago, uh, I have a new neighbor who like messaged me on Facebook of all things, and is like, hey, we have a Baptist women's group. Like, wouldn't you love to come? And I was like, no, no. you know, no, no, I wouldn't. I was like, unless unless I was going to make this into an ethnographic project. And I feel yeah. like I shouldn't do that with my neighbors. So, yeah. you know, but yeah, so that's just so much of what I'm in still <laughs> now. Um, but I'm better prepared for it than I was, you know, in middle school or in high school or even in early college.
0: Uh, this is interesting. You're actually the second guest in the show's history who has a doctorate and and is in the general um, academia religious studies sphere okay. and has written a bu- book about zombies. So um, <laughs> <laughs> you and my friend Greg Garrett uh, are 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 the two. Um, why did you decide to write about zombies? You
1: know, it was one of these things where I taught this class called, like, Apocalypses in American Culture. It was a great class where we kind of went through um, different groups and how they understood the apocalypse or what they imagined it looked like, you know, yeah. um, whether they were, like, eager about it or not, you know, um, and, and pretty much how they oriented themselves in the world if they understood that the world was going to end soon. And so I did this unit on zombies, and it was wild because, like, every other unit we did, my undergrads, were like critical and reflective, and they did like this smart analysis. Mm. You know? And like we get to zombies, and they're like, "Dr. Baker, zombies are just fun." And I was like, "Wait, what?" You know. And they're like, "No, no, no, they're fun. Like, you know, all this other stuff that you say is going on is not like going on here." And I had moment where I was like, "Wait, what is what is happening?" Right. And it was because so many of them were fans of zombies you know, and it's not fun necessarily to like dig into the stuff that you're a fan of and realize that it's sexist or white supremacist or one of these things, right? Like that's a hard um, thing to reckon with. So I was really curious as to like why they reacted to zombies that way. And I was like, oh, you know, are there other people out there like this? And it didn't take much research for me to find people that are like, doomsday preppers who were like you know the zombie apocalypse is coming and we're prepared and I was like wait what w- what do you mean it's coming <laughs> <laughs> like I didn't know this was an option right like this is not on my radar of something that I should be worried about um and you know like my radar of what I should worry about is pretty vast actually and so this one was just not on there um and and so I decided that I would kind of look into not only the people that believed that zombies would appear and in the world, but also how zombies and apocalyptic language were used in American culture to communicate different things. Um, and so, yeah, it was a project that just started out so much with a question about like, why zombies and why don't we want to analyze them mm-hmm. and, into like this wild world of like doomsday pressures and um, American gun culture you know, um, CDC having a zombie campaign, um, and me saying like, what, what happens if the apocalyptic is how we approach the world, right? Like if what's motivating us is that the world is going to end and we know that, like, what are our politics like or our ethics? Um, and so that is really like how that book (laughs) came to be, um, and, and I'm not even a fan of zombies, like, actually. <laughs> but once I got in it, I was, like, in it, you know? Um, sure. And, and yeah.
0: I, I wonder if, like, any of the um, insights that you gained in writing that book um, you you found sort of applicable to the uh, the current pandemic, right? Like, is any of the stuff that you covered there do you feel like it's been kind of predictive of the behavior of certain people who have let's say certain more like conspiratorial um, doomsday ideas about the pandemic
1: no i think it's definitely there um and you know it's one of the things that i write about some in the book right about like folks that are convinced that you know the government is creating zombies right or that the government's out to get us or that the cdc is not trustworthy um, you know, the, and then they have these like large conspiracy theories about, you know, what like military testing that's leading to zombies or this sort of thing. And so the conspiracy piece is very much there. Mm-hmm. And um, and, you know, you can't change their minds. Right. I mean, this is the thing about the conspiratorial worldview is that. um That there's always something that makes something else make sense, you know, like there's always this kind of logic to it. Um, and the more that people press against it, they're more certain, you know, they are that this is the way the world actually works. Uh, so yeah, so that was definitely a piece of it. Um, uh, like the running joke in my household was like, at least if it had been zombies last year, like it would have been over more quickly. <laughs> like we're in this unending <laughs> pandemic, right? Like it's so slow. Um, and we're like, and at least if it'd been zombies, like it would have been a legitimate threat <laughs> that right. we deal with, right? That's obvious. As opposed <laughs> to, you know, a virus um that we're locked down from, but doesn't have an easy solution, right? Like it's um, you know, we have vaccines now, but like even then we are realizing that that's not gonna entirely work unless a whole bunch of other people decide to actually be vaccinated. Um, but yeah, it's one of those where um, you know, I could never quite understand the people that would get bitten by zombies and then like hide it. And now I'm like, oh no, <laughs> like it makes sense. Yeah, like here we go, yeah, like, all of the yeah. sense
0: now, right? <laughs>
1: Like those are the people that would show up and be like, no, I didn't get, no, what are you talking about? Right. Um, or they, or
0: they get bit intentionally to get herd immunity and then like, yeah, (laughs) right. Right.
1: Right. right. And it's like, it's like, oh, oh, we're surrounded by those people. And I didn't know it. Um, I'm like, I guess that's good that I have clarity about that now. I don't know. Um, but yeah, no, it was like all of this like kind of makes sense in a way that I didn't know. Um, George Romero has this really famous quote, About how it's not the zombies that you really should be afraid of; it's your neighbors. Yeah, you know, and so this point about like, you know, yeah, the zombies are there and they're the threat, but like the people that are really going to do you in, you know, and often in his films that is the case, right? Is it's the neighbors that are trying to survive and pitted themselves against you, or you know, that have have gotten bitten and don't let you know, Um, and so that the danger is always other humans. And with this pandemic, I was like, yep yeah that was prophetic
0: <laughs> <laughs> i've um i've joked on this show a number of times about how um the, the walking dead needs to be completely redone from scratch with what we now now know about what happens in in those circumstances i think the thing the walking dead gets right is that it does emphasize that the, the real threat is not the zombies it's it's right. the surviving humans um yeah. what i think it needs to now reanalyze is the way that people respond when there's a breakout of a incredibly infectious and deadly disease because it is not at all what most zombie apocalypse movies suggest it is
1: no people are just going to be in the streets you know like they're going to (laughs) make sure they get their hair cut you know just like wander past yeah you know um make sure they're in the movie theater yeah i mean i think it really does show um that the way that zombie films at least portray the response to these kinds of cataclysms are not actually how we would respond, yeah. right? It's not like everyone would be like locking their doors or boarding their windows or something like that. Like some people would just be out wandering around still, right pretending that the zombies aren't there or something like this. Um and and so I totally agree with you. Like it would have to be a different <laughs> a different approach to that. Um entirely um than the kind of premise where you know oh no everybody reacts and takes this threat seriously <laughs> and it's like oh no
0: and joins together to fight the 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 shared the shared threat and yeah right right that's
1: exactly right yeah no um yeah there there is that thing about um where it's like it's this sort of like deep Americanness, right of the importance of individuals over community <laughs> right that we just kind of see all the time now <laughs> <laughs> you know, like yeah. it's just it's just abundantly apparent and like unavoidable and yeah and so so it is funny because i tend to try to be a really optimistic person like the last couple of years have really tried me on this but you know where i'm like oh like people can come together and now i'm like ah,
2: no
1: yeah <laughs> maybe like, some people maybe yeah some people I'm like, but maybe not the majority, like I thought, you know. Um, And so, yeah, it it is one of those where I was like, oh, maybe humans aren't as terrible as zombie movies make them seem. And now I'm like, um, well,
0: (laughs) (laughs) maybe they are, but in different ways, right?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. right. Um, And and still, I don't hope not a majority, but yeah, it is. It is this kind of thing where it's like, oh wow, like we really have a sense. about how people care about other people right in this moment in a way that maybe wasn't as obvious but has always kind of been there um but the pandemic of course as it's heightened all kinds of other things and made things clear um has definitely done it in this case too
0: so let's uh switch gears over to the clan when did the first edition of your um of your clan book come out
1: Oh my gosh, 2011. So the book is going to be 10 this year. Oh, happy
0: birthday, Clan Book!
1: Yes, which blo- <laughs> it blows my mind. Um, but yeah, no, it it it's wild to me. Um, so so it was a book finished in the Obama era, right? Yeah,
0: and it barely looks a day over January 6th. So yeah,
1: yeah. 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 No, I mean it's it's. Uh, I have a friend that jokes. Um, that like anytime like anything terrible happens like there's a jump in my book sales right like so like we have an insurrection (laughs) and like my book is a bestseller on amazon and it's one of those where it's like do we like congratulate her or do we not (laughs) like like is it is it good that there are book sales but democracy is dying you know like like how do you (laughs) how do you
0: right right it's like when when like 1984 goes up to the bestseller list again, you're like, oh God, oh. uh-oh. Yeah, oh, it's not, yeah, it's not a good thing. Yeah. It's not
1: a good, it's, so it's never a good thing.
0: I mean, it's good for you in the I, long Yeah, time.
1: I mean, I yeah. get, yeah. I mean, and so that is like the piece that's kind of interesting to me is that, um, you know, I wrote this book and um, in 2011, you know, people were very much in this still, like we're in a post-racial society. We have a black president you know um why are you writing about the Klan right like why are you writing about white supremacists when they're not that big of a deal um and they were still that big of a deal because like the increase in membership of white supremacist movements after the um, Obama's second election like was up you know like right. so so there were already the kind of signs that it was there um but there was a real way that people are like oh you know i think you're just being like provocative or dramatic, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and now 10 years later, I'm like, can we maybe agree that I wasn't (laughs) (laughs) like, 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 can you just like give this to me? Not like a lot. Right. But just say like, maybe there were things going on that laid the groundwork for the Trump administration, right. Laid the groundwork for um, the January 6th insurrection. Mm
2: hmm yeah
1: um yeah so the the kind of long history of that book now is that um people kind of rediscover it you know and then are like oh wow like maybe we should have been paying attention to white Christian nationalism and I'm like yeah you know maybe we should have
0: maybe we should still do that um yeah it's I, I was just going through it recently and it's it's still depressingly relevant um
1: no it really is I mean, yeah, yeah, I always feel bad. You know, people on Twitter will be like, I picked up your clan book. And I'm like, I'm sorry. Yeah, (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry it's come to this. I'm "I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, Which I'm sure my press would love to know that I'm like apologizing where I'm like, I'm like, I'm sorry. It's going to be really depressing. Like my bad, you know. Um,
0: (laughs) (laughs) Read the zombie book instead. Um,
1: (laughs) (laughs) Which is equally depressing (laughs) in a different way. But yeah. um, So. So, yeah, it, it is very, very strange to me um, that that book is still relevant. And, and in a lot of ways, it feels like we're living through events that have previously happened that are documented in that book. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and I think that's like what's strange for me is, is, you know, as a historian, I was like 1915 to 1930 it's only 15 years, like, that's not so bad, right? So, like, that's the beauty of distance, you know, um, where I'm, like, yeah. oh, well, you know, like, in the grand scheme of things, like, like, what is 15 years? And, like, you know, like, a year into the Trump administration, I was, like, 15 years is a really long time, right? Like, a really long time. <laughs> I was, like, right. I was wrong with these four people. Um, but, yeah, so I think it it's interesting to see The resonances and how it can still be relevant when we're talking about, you know, um, a group that existed in the 1920s. um, And, you know, now we're in the 2020s and seeing that kind of come back around has been really jarring and bizarre um, to me.
0: Yeah. So, you, I mean sort of to preface this you you made the joke about the post-racial america thing i i i I tell my students in you know 2021 um with a kind of a um little bit of sarcasm i guess like i because i I, they 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 sort of don't believe what i'm saying um Mm -hmm. which is when i tell them that in 2008 there were like educated adults on the radio asking if we're living in a post-racial America. And I'm like, what the hell are you talking like? Oh, because Barack Obama was elected once. Like what, how does that work? And like, not, you know, not like conservative or even like, I'm talking like NPR, like, you know, Columbia professors talking about this. Um, And it's, it's, it was shocking to me to be like, whoa, are they really having this conversation? And of course it's even more shocking now um, because Mm -hmm. it's somehow funnier now. But the reason I bring that up is because one of the things that I think is so kind of endearing about your book is that it focuses on not the, the, the clan that we all know, right. Not the, like the Jerry Springer show clan. Um, But the, but I think the elements of the clan that most people don't get. Um, and the three things that I think are I I want to kind of dig a little bit deeper on with you are um, the current clan is actually the second iteration uh, mm-hmm. of the clan, which I think most people don't really appreciate. Um, that it is a fundamentally religious organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and that its sociodemographic makeup is not what the stereotype would have people believe. Um, so let's start at the beginning of that thing there's what are the two clans like the 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 original and the um the one that we know today and, and what sort of different differentiates those two organizations
1: right so the 1920s clan which i study is the second incarnation of the clan um the first was the reconstruction clan that existed after the civil war uh which was um in direct reaction to um the enfranchisement of black people in the United States. So that this concern about it's the end of slavery, right? What happens if um, black folks have rights like white folks do? Um, It was still religious, like Christianity was a component of it, Um, but a lot of what the reconstruction order was concerned with was race, right? And, And trying to keep White supremacy as the status quo, right? That they don't want, they didn't want this sort of moment where, <laughs> you know, that there would be all these new rights for um, formerly enslaved peoples. This is a deep concern. Uh, and, you know, it's the order that very much would terrorize Black people. Um, it would terrorize white allies. Um, you know, they're the ones that introduced the hood and robes, you know, so they could kind of look like the ghost of the Confederate dead. So very much invested in racial terrorism, right? Like this is what happened. Um, So the 1920s order was conceived of as a more respectable order. So the Reconstruction clan definitely was an influence for how they developed, um, but it was very much an attempt to create like a softer image of the clan um, you know, that they were for nationalism and they were for Protestantism, they were still for white supremacy, like that didn't disappear.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: but a lot of their talking points were about, you know, how America needs to stay Protestant, right, and stay 100% American. Um, and, and of course, what they meant by 100% American was white Americans, uh, but they had a a different feel, right? Um, They were good at public relations. Um, They were able to draw in um, estimates from four to six million members in all 48 continental states, uh, which is much larger than the Reconstruction Klan. And it was the one time that the Klan has been the most mainstream, so that people were joining, men and women. There was a women's order as well as the men's order. Uh, joining, they were reading clan newspapers, they were going to clan events and having picnics and marches, right, and these sorts of things. Um, you know, clan ministers, so ministers who were members of the clan, who you know would tour around the nation, giving lectures, explaining to people why they should be a part of um, this new clan and join up with this. Um, and so, very much a group of middle class white Protestants. Uh, and, and we, this is me getting ahead, but, you know, like the demographic question here is that generally when people think about the Klan, they assume that they're like working class, right? Mm-hmm. Or they mm-hmm. assume that they're uneducated, you know, and that's the very common stereotype when it comes to white supremacists, right? That they're like somehow backward, that they're not into technology, that they're not educated, this sort of thing. Um, in the 1920s clan, there were dentists and lawyers and ministers and teachers, right? And bankers and politicians, um, you know, who were a part of this. So it was an educated group. Um, it was primarily composed of people who were middle class. Yes, there were working class clansmen, but like a, a good bulk of these folks were not uneducated. They were not backward. They were very savvy with technology of the time. Um, there are newspapers, were pretty complex and nuanced in how they address these issues. Uh, they were really good at presenting their brand of 100% Americanism and white Protestantism to larger audiences. So they really work against that still very common stereotype that white supremacists are somehow uneducated and lower class. Right. Um, and and I think that's part of the problem we have now, too, is that people still have that image in their head when they think mm-hmm. about white supremacists and extremists in general, right? Um, and it's just not how it works. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, um, and this is one of those that I feel like I'm like, beating my head against a wall every time I do this, right? Where I'm yeah. like, you're middle class. And people are like, no.
2: And yeah.
1: I'm like, oh, yes, they are. Like, I don't. Like I can show you documents, <laughs> like I can, I can, make this point to you. Um, but it is like really hard for people to wrap their heads around that um, Klan members and other white supremacists might actually be wh- white middle class people, and and I think that is really jarring to some folks when they kind of want to imagine that white supremacists are at the fringe of our society, right, right. rather right. than in the center in some sort of way.
0: Yeah. So as far as the the, the, the Christianity angle works, I, I think one of the issues is that it's just difficult to communicate to people what Christianity is beyond what they think uh-huh. uh, Christianity is. I think that's part of why it's hard to um, present the idea that the Klan is a, a um, intrinsically Christian movement. Right. Um, um, you know, our, our our pal Bradenishi uh, speaks about this pretty eloquently when he talks about the fact that like, there's no such thing as real Christianity, right? Like every, every Christianity is real Christianity. And if you take the defensive of saying like, well, Jesus said, turn the other cheek. And so how can the clan be Christian? It's like, well, okay, but that's yours. That's your Christianity. And like, it's a, it's a big Bible, you know what I mean? Um, And there's a lot of Jesus is in that Bible. So hold the phone for a second. Um, So let's 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 talk about then in what way um, the Klan is Christian and like why that matters. Like how do they what is their vision of Christianity and how do they justify um, that vision through the lens of um, white supremacy and Christian nationalism?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, like Brad, I. Kind of, I mean, it's just one of those where I'm like, why are we still debating this? Like, I don't you know, like, why, like, why are we doing this? Um,
2: yeah.
1: and so one of the things that happened to me pretty early on is that folks were okay with me saying that the Klan was religious, like general term. they were less comfortable with me saying that they were Christians. Mm. you know like that there was something there that they wanted to keep separate right like the clan because the clan was bad you can't see my scare quotes but maybe you can hear them (laughs) in my voice because the clan was bad right then they couldn't be christian right it was like part of this argument um and so one of the things that i tried to pay particular attention to then was like how they formed their christianity right so clear belief in jesus and the saving power of jesus right so that jesus becomes the 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 sacrifice of jesus on the cross motivates them right and that self-sacrifice becomes part of the order for clansmen that this is kind of an ideal that they're expected to live up to um that they understand you know and talk about things like baptism you know that they oftentimes look remarkably evangelical in the way that they talk about Christianity um, and they they want people to inhabit Christianity. Uh, their symbols and artifacts um, also tell part of the story of this theology. Um, you know, one of the things that was super interesting to me in the archives is that the way they describe the clan hood and robe was explicitly Christian. And that always throws people, right? Where they're like, wait, what? <laughs> You know, like how does that happen um but the clan had this idea that like once a clansman put on the robe right that they were wearing jesus on their body right like that they were mm. showing his example and they were expected to live to his ideals um so that there's a lot about jesus there is a lot about the history of protestantism they were deeply interested in telling the history of christianity in a way that focuses on protestants um so like my running joke is that with the clan you had like jesus and then like stuff happened and they're not really clear on what that stuff is and then you have martin luther <laughs> and then like we can do the rest of the history right and so it's like huh, oh, that's so interesting that like who knew that christian history went from jesus to martin luther like who did they leave out and it's like oh The whole development of the Catholic Church, completely gone, right? Um, Because they want to focus on Protestantism and, you know, what they would consider legitimate Christianity. Um, Again, scare quotes around legitimate. Uh, But so you can see them, like, narrating themselves into... Christian history, right, that they become another, like, reformation, you know, that they become another movement, you know, they're Christian knights that are going to save not only the nation, the American nation, but also the Christian faith from anyone that's going to attack it. Um, and so you get this, and I found this a lot in their newspapers, where they're very explicit about this, right, and very clear about what they believe and what's important, right, and um, you know, that they were interested in doing charity and giving donations to churches and orphanages and organizations, um, which often people are surprised by, Um, you know, uh, there are even instances where they gave uh, money to black churches, um, which is wild, you know, in a certain way where you're (laughs) like, wait, what's happening here? And like the justification they had is, well, they're furthering Protestantism, right? Like, they're not happy about the, the race part of it, which is essential. But, you know, like, they're like, but we gave them money because they're Protestant. And so, like, you find, like, these kind of really interesting examples of how they're trying to present themselves as living Christian lives, right? Um, the other part of that, of course, is that their motivations are explicitly white supremacist. So one of the things that's really important here is that their Protestant Christianity and their white supremacy, we can't quite separate them, right? So when they're telling the history of Protestantism, they're paying attention to white Protestants, right? Like they're not paying attention to other people. Um, You know, when they're talking about the American nation and who's going to lead, it's white Protestants that are going to do this. So they never get very far from the idea of white supremacy. And it never fails that when i talk about this um like when to public audiences you know pre-pandemic i would always have like it never failed that it was like um some woman who looked like my grandmother right like just super sweet and would raise her hand and would be like you know i heard you give this whole talk <laughs> you know 45 minutes of my life <laughs> you know like i heard you give this whole talk but um you know the claim can't be christian because um, Jesus is about love, right? Right. right. And um, I would always be like, no, no, no. Like, <laughs> yeah, like the clan is there, right? Like, Jesus was totally about love for the clan. I'm like, but Jesus only cared about love for white people, right? So that's very much kind of inculcates how they did things, you know, that this was not some sort of expansive universal love, right? It was, was exclusive, it was limited. And of course, we see examples of this today, right? And how um, American Christianity is practiced. So, but it is this kind of interesting thing where people are like, well, they can't be. And I'm like, well, they can because they're using the same language. It's just to different ends, right? Um, And that doesn't make them not Christian. It just means that their Christianity looks different (laughs) than, as you said, right? A lot of people expect Christianity to look
0: yeah, you know, and I think of like the. Um, I've always found the the clan sort of costume to be, you know, kind of reminiscent of the Templars, um, mm-hmm. and and this kind of, you know you can make the case, I guess, that the Templars were also like a violent terrorist organization, like right. hell bent on genocide. I don't think that's necessarily a fair reading of it, but like right. that's it's still it's still like the uh the str- the the strain of sort of the white crusading um mm-hmm. you know uh hero Christian soldier um is is all throughout history. And uh you know I know a lot of a lot of fundamentalist protestants write off anything catholic as having been like Mm -hmm. doesn't count um but yeah it's 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 really interesting to it it makes me want to want to know what someone who says they can't really be christian they're so mean right thinks of like jerry falwell i'm like well like where does the line get drawn (laughs) you know
1: and, and i think that's what's interesting to me too right is that it's like, they're like, well, they can't be because they're a hate group, right? Like, Mm -hmm. that somehow them being a hate group means that they couldn't be Christian. And I'm always like, what about Westboro Baptist Church, right? Like, like how do you you deal with that group, right? Or um, how do you deal with um, Christian groups that are explicitly... Um, anti-LGBTQ people, right, and who have hateful rhetoric, right, and are doing these sorts of things. So it's it kind of always fascinating to me, like you said, about where we draw the line, right. Um, and after the January 6th insurrection, there were folks that were like, well, you know, there were Christian symbols, right, at mm-hmm. the Capitol. They're like, but like, you know, is that Christianity? And I'm like, ooh, pick me, pick me. Yes. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like, it is. <laughs> um, I have
0: books. Yeah. I
1: have books, right? Um, and But it is that like attempt where people want to say that the groups that make them more comfortable, right, who we don't have to dig very far down into the rhetoric oftentimes to find the same kind of exclusion, just that it's been prettied up, you know, in some kind of way um don't want to address this right to say like oh no like if it's this group that we've labeled a hate group then clearly they don't count and um you know like it's just kind of an exhausting argument but it's Mm -hmm. still so common that people really don't want to associate um Christianity with movements like the Klan when it's like so baked in like it's unavoidable um and baked into um you know the January 6th insurrection too that that um, the Christian symbols are not there by accident, right? Like the t shirts, the people holding crosses, this sort of thing. Like those all work together. Um, but still, there's that attempt to like distance, you know, and say, well, this is not really what we're talking about. And I'm like, oh, no, it is. <laughs> you know, and yeah. it's indicative of a larger history of um, white American Christianity, too. And people definitely don't want to hear me. Say that kind of thing, right? Like they get really annoyed with me. So, um, but yeah, like the history is there. We see the examples, but um, we still have a hard job, I think, of um, convincing a larger public that that's what's happening.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting. I. I think back to um, the days when I was young enough and patient enough to uh, engage with conservative acquaintances on Facebook um, in, in arguments about things. And I, I remember one of them getting into an argument about um, Christian terrorism, right? Uh, mm-hmm. cause, Cause you know, one of my conservative, I guess, like acquaintances was going on about Muslims and it was during the, um, during the uh, 9-11 mosque. Uh, uh-huh. Right. Um, and so someone made some snarky comment about like, well, I don't see a bunch of nuns throwing bombs. And I'm like, okay, but what about Timothy McVeigh? Right. right, right. Um, and, and one of the, one of the, uh, Sort of strange phenomenons that I that I notice is exactly what you're saying, which is that as soon as there isn't a solid example of a Christian terrorist, um, the Christianity suddenly becomes incidental, right? Like right. the fact that Tim McVeigh was a Christian had nothing to do with the Oklahoma City bombing, and like the opposite is true. Um, right. it, it is it is fundamental to you know the, the radicalization that 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 he went through. Um, and yeah, again, like I, I, I am with you that I am smacking my head against the wall uh, with January sixth, um, and and trying to demonstrate it as um, a, a, you know, if not primarily, certainly um, centrally kind of uh, Christian event, um, and, a, and a and a white Christian nationalist backlash.
1: I think that's important because this is something that I run into, as you can imagine, all the time, right? Yeah which is that there are still so many people that want, I would argue, not only in the public, but within the academy as well, who want to understand Christianity as something that's inherently good, right? right. Like that this, right. Is, this is a goodness, you know. Um, and, and so I've had scholars tell me, <laughs> um, not recently, not in recent years, mostly when I was working on the book in early stages, that the Klan couldn't be religious because they did bad things
2: right <laughs> right
1: and, yeah. and and i mean and it was one of those things where like i just kind of looked I, I mean it must have been like a deer in the headlights look that i gave <laughs> them because i just didn't even know how to re- like i don't know how to respond to it except to be like no you're wrong you know like um which is maybe not the best way to approach it um maybe it's the best way i don't know um but it, it, sometimes, it, it is. So, sometimes it is but it was just so interesting to me the kind of um the reticence and the way that people really would double down on my work that way, where they're like, you know, I see what you're doing here. Like, it's interesting, but it's not really religion, Kelly, right? Like the religion stuff is just propaganda. It's politics, right? And and I'm like, no, I've spent an inordinate amount of time in archives, right? Like I'm showing (laughs) you that like, this is something that they're doing, right? Like it's not them like just turning to religion to like smooth over some of their other things. Right. Like their Christianity is enmeshed in their white supremacy is enmeshed in their patriotism and that they all support and bolster and create each other. And that really makes people nervous um, to sort of emphasize that. And um, I have to tell people all the time, like, I'm just not in the game of being like this is good or this is bad religion i'm like it doesn't get us anywhere analytically like it's not helpful you know Um, right i'm like it's a moral judgment that might make you feel better i guess but i was (laughs) like but i was like as an analyst that just doesn't do anything right like that shuts down a conversation instead of like opens one up about like how what should we think about the way that religion works in the world right um And, and the kind of work that it does. And, and so, yeah, it, it's interesting to me, too. And I get the, like, well, this is a bad form of Christianity. And I'm like, okay, well, how about we look at all the other groups that mimic the Klan then contemporarily? Like, are you going to call them bad? You know, like, um, and then people are like, well, they're different. And I'm like, is it because they don't put on the hood and robe? Because their rhetoric is the same. You know, like, it's not... Um, it's something about like the spectacle of the clan too that people want to point to and I'm like no it's also their artifacts and symbol are Christian to the core
0: speaking of spectacle I can can we just talk about the the cross burning for a second because sure, I get sure. again I think this is one of those things that um, I nobody gets I, mm-hmm. I have to admit that like for most of my life I was like I don't get it <laughs> what you, like, what is <laughs> what are you trying to say with burning a cross you're like burning right, Jesus yes. or like what I thought yeah, you liked yeah. Jesus and like and then I was like oh they got it from a movie.
1: <laughs> yes. No, they did. They did. No. I mean, that's like the that's like the funny piece to me, right, is that they get this, the 20s clan gets this from Birth of a Nation, Birth of a Nation who uses it, right, as like, this is the way we signal people, right, as we set a cross on fire. And, mm-hmm. you know, and so the 20s clan wanted to claim, they're like, we got this tradition from the Scottish clans of lore, right? Where they would light these crosses on fire and then light another one. And, you know, like there's a way to communicate this way. Um, you know, okay, maybe that is true. Maybe it's not. Um, but they took that, you know, like from a movie, took it, and then like repackaged it in Christian terms, right? Mm-hmm. And so for me too, before I got into this project, I was like, why are you setting a cross on fire? That kind of feels like blasphemous but okay like you (laughs) know like i don't understand what you're doing and you know like so i get in the archives and i i will never forget like i'm like going through like microfilm which is its own kind of torture right like just going through the microfilm you know like with my face as close to it as possible you know and i see this thing, and it's about the crosses and i'm like okay you know seven symbols of the clan and they're like yeah you know like we set the cross on fire to show people the light of jesus and i was like wait what (laughs) you know i was like what like what's happening here you know and i was like is this like a one-off thing and no it's like part of their the way that they repackaged you know burning crosses is they're like oh no like we don't put them on people's yards to terrorize them we're like showing them the light of jesus and i'm like y'all y'all like okay maybe like okay maybe that's what's happening i'm like but also you're clearly terrorizing people (laughs) because like if you come out and there's a cross on your yard i'm not gonna be like you know what it's the light of Jesus. I should go to church. It's going to be like, oh gosh, someone's after me. Like, why is this happening? Yeah. Um, Giant
0: burning objects generally, you know,
1: generally you're not a welcome sign. The human response
0: is fear. Right. (laughs) Yeah.
1: No. (laughs) Um, And so, so it's interesting because it shows how, um, you know, they are repackaging these things as Christian, right. And like trying to create them as Christian symbols. But they're not always able to get away from the baggage of this stuff either, right? Like, you know, so they could say that they're showing the light of Jesus all the time. But the way they're using it, of course, is for terrorism. So they're always trying to kind of balance those out. And I think that's one of the things that surprises people about this research too, right? Is that you can kind of see the contradictions of what they're working with and how they're trying to make the system work for them. Right. And, and how it can't sometimes, right. Because other people's meanings of things have more weight than, you know, the clan's way to render stuff. Um, and those are the pieces I find most interesting as I'm like, Oh, wow. Right. Like they're really trying here and it is not working, but like they're giving it a go um, to craft their own story about Christianity. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Um, but just to see how they wanted to imbue everything, right? Like everything with Christianity um, was so fascinating to me um, because even still now, as we've mentioned already, like there is this reticence to understand the Klan as Christian, right? Like, and to other, understand other white supremacist movements as religious too, in a lot of ways, um, or to understand The insurrection could have like a christian element to it right like that that people just get really nervous when you start saying things like that
0: well speaking of bad takes so you know (laughs) i i i think there have been there have been three really really bad liberal academia takes over the last couple decades that have really made me like furious right and one of them i've already talked about which is the post-racial america thing yeah right um the other one is, is one that I, again, I hear all the time um, we heard it and there's a much, this is a different discussion to have, but of course we heard it like after 9-11 where it's like, oh, those are the bad Muslims, right? Like yes. that's not real Islam. Right. Um, real Islam is this, real Christianity is this, that's bad, that's good. Um, and it's like, okay, I know you're trying to uh, stop racism from happening, mm-hmm. but like this isn't true and, and right. this is not the way to talk about it. Um, so the last one is again is something that I, I I think is one of the reasons why probably your book becomes popular again at certain times, which is the persistent um, uh, explanation for the Trump election of the uh, legitimate economic anxieties explanation, right? Oh. Um, yeah, I, I know. <laughs> um, you, so I, this is great. You 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 write. I'm going to quote your book for a second, um, talking about the uh, the perception of the. Um, 1920s clan you wrote despite the large membership of the order scholars the media and the general public relied on stereotypes of clansmen as backward rural people who lacked education refinement and tolerance right um which is exactly what the uh the media image of the trump voter is and also the media Mm -hmm. image of the january 6th rioter um and Mm -hmm. every time something happens that they don't like it's like no no no, they're just upset about the economy um okay so (laughs) let's let's unpack this for a second um if not if 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 these are not uneducated people who are um, upset about their economic disposition um you know the alternative explanation is scarier um yeah. but but in your in your finding um what does drive like you know the 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 blanket uh answer of racism right is is fine right. i guess but um in a more sort of explanatory and, and sort of academic explanation of it, um, what do you sense is the is the consistent drive between the 1920s clan and the 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 Tea Party, which you also talk about in the book? Mm-hmm. A movement I'd forgotten about. Uh, yeah, was so <laughs> I was like, oh man! Right? I, like, I remember oh, it's when, not. It was, yeah. when it had a different name than Trumpism. <laughs> right. um, and then and then MAGA, um, what 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 should we see? um you know because like if we want to stop it if we want to if we want to you know sort of tamp it down in our society what should we see as the root cause of these things
1: i think it's a really good and hard question um and i think i mean yeah so it seems that journalists in particular are obsessed with saying like the rise of trump right the rise of the tea party you know maga nation right like that, that it's all about like economic uncertainty
0: and this new thing that came out of nowhere this right? is new,
1: new thing this new thing right like because other people that are you know economically anxious don't terrorize people but like whatever <laughs> like that's besides the point you know um yeah. and so and so it's always this thing where it's like this is a movement of the working classes. Mm-hmm. right like mm-hmm. and th- and these are the folks that they try to profile like i swear to goodness the new york times before the January sixth insurrection, like walked past like the realtors and the bankers, you know, to like find the trucker to talk to. Where they're like, no, we're not going to talk to the person with a designer handbag. Like we're going to go over <laughs> here and talk to this other person, yeah. um, you know. And so it's that stereotype again, right? Uneducated, working class, um, you know, people that are motivating this because they're just so the, the the economy has not been kind to them, right? Um, so yeah, so economics are part of this but i think it doesn't take much digging in to realize that folks that um could afford to fly and have a hotel room and make their own merch and do these (laughs) sorts of things for the january 6th insurrection are not people who are necessarily economically anxious because they have means right to be able to do this and to organize and to do these things and especially when you look at the costuming of that i was like oh my gosh like this costs money, right? Like mm-hmm. this costs a lot of money to have these things, to bring these things, you know. There's discussions of people paying $700 for a hotel room for a night, right? Which like makes me want to fall on the floor. Um, so it just, so clearly it's not the economic piece. And I think what we're seeing with this movement um, is something that we were seeing with the Klan, which is this deep nervousness that the white Christian status quo was under threat, right? So one of the things that I point out in the book is that the Klan was a reactionary movement to this deep concern in the 20s over immigration, over the enfranchisement of Black people, um, some concern over women's rights and what that might mean in some sort of way. Um, So there's all this like nervousness that at any moment, white people might not be in power anymore, right? The thing about this of course is that they were deeply concerned like that Catholics were gonna be a voting block right and there would be a Catholic <laughs> president instead of a Protestant president right like and there there, is. Yeah. all and yeah right like there's <laughs> all this like nervousness about it at the same time that white people were still in power right so it's this kind of interesting thing about like what happens right if like white people no longer dominate politics or dominate like, um social norms or dominate like what is culture and what counts as culture and these sorts of things um and so i think we see this too right like um especially when they would like interview trump voters right who were just very clear like they wanted a particular type of nation that was nostalgic right and it was when it made sense to them and they didn't have to deal with all these people that were different (laughs) you know like Like get back to this like moment in time, right? Where it's
0: the again um, of, of great again, right? Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. Entirely that. And um and you know, and that kind of echoes a Klan rally too, right? Where they're like they were concerned with like what was gonna happen to America and how they needed to save it, right? Because it was on like the brink of destruction. Um, because there were other people besides white Protestants <laughs> you know, yeah. in America. Um and so I feel like that's so much a part of this. Um, and so economics is there. And, you know, Christianity is also a piece of this, even if it's that kind of cultural Christianity that Trump gestured to. Right. Because mm-hmm.
0: um, he's never been to church. so right, like, right.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: Right. Right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> exactly. Where it's like, OK, you know, like, make your choices about leadership, I guess. Um, and but I think that's the kind of piece of it that people don't necessarily want to deal with, yeah. particularly because if we start to think about their support of the white supremacist status quo, we have to think about how the rest of us are implicated in it too. You know, like it's not a thing that we can opt out of in any way. Um, and I think those are like hard questions that people don't want to deal with, right? Um, or that they just, don't want to have to give up some of those privileges associated with that, right? Even if they aren't aligned with Trump, right? Even if they are, um, they maybe consider themselves to be white liberals, right? Like, there, there are pieces of this that once we, like, actively start dismantling it, like, it's going to get real fast, right? About yeah. who have opportunity and these sorts of things, right? And yeah. access to opportunity. Um, and so, yeah, like, I think that there are a lot of folks that just don't want to do that kind of work, um, which is hard and difficult, but also means you would be giving something up. And so I feel like the Klan and then Trumpism, we're able to tap into those concerns very well, right? Like what happens if we're not in power, right? What, what happens if white people aren't in power, right? Um, you know, and use this very fear-based language for that, right, like this is what it looks like. This is the danger, you know, um, and, that kind of fear-based approach is pretty darn effective um both then and now
0: um if I were to like circle a place where I would guess Trumpism radiates out from I'd pretty much pick like where you live um (laughs) So I think you're <laughs> I think you're you need- You're
1: not. I'm laughing because like it's like a release here but yeah you're not wrong.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um I, I I ask you this then, as someone who you know sort of again lives has gone native, so to speak, um, on in this regard. Um, you know, the Klan is is something of a joke, right, uh, to most mm-hmm. people now. Its membership is 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 not is not huge, right? Um, you know, I think ultimately David Duke was a PR nightmare for them uh, in the mm-hmm. long run. Um, but having said that, uh, do you think that? is it fair to say that essentially the MAGA hat is the new robe Um, that, that it's not that it's gone. It's just that it's shifted into this far more kind of embedded um, and, and omnipresent thing um, as a lot of people, I think, um, fear that it has.
1: Yeah. I wrote about this a while ago where, um, where it was pretty much that argument, right? Like, so, you know, we don't have folks in Klan robes. We have folks in MAGA hats, right? The red MAGA hats or with, um, you know, Trump t-shirts with really nasty slogans, right? Mm -hmm. About different people. So yeah, I mean, so folks aren't using the hood and robe, but they're still using these artifacts of white supremacy to communicate how they feel about things. Um, so that hasn't gone away at all, right? It's just, there's a subtle, sometimes there's a subtleness, sometimes there's not, but there's a subtleness to it that I think makes it harder to pinpoint than it is when somebody shows up in a robe and is lighting a cross, right? Like there's a level of like, you can't miss this, right? Um, when that happens. And so I really, I mean, I really do think that the MAGA hat has become, you know, like that's what the robe has transformed into, you know, um, In the same way that after Charlottesville, right, it was everybody in the like khaki pants and like polos, you know, which is like the most like (laughs) innocuous, like wear that then became a white supremacist symbol because of all the people wearing it, right? Like that that became a uniform of white supremacy in that moment. Um, And it shows you how quickly those items that we just think are kind of like mundane and banal (laughs) can like so quickly turn into something like this, depending on the context that they're used in. Um, But yeah, like who would have imagined that like a polo and khakis, right? Could communicate that or or a haircut, right? You know, that the alt-right folks had with their like fashies, you know? So there, there are different ways that these symbols come across that I think are harder to read, right? Which is why they... Are effective, you know, because um, you could pretend that the MAGA hat isn't necessarily a symbol of white supremacy, right? People do, but like it is. It
0: is, yeah, yeah, and it's and it's it's far more at this point anyway. Um broadly speaking socially acceptable like you wouldn't Mm -hmm. right you wouldn't go and you wouldn't go to a baseball game in a hood I don't think I would Uh, hope not I hope not but like you'll (laughs) certainly see especially in certain parts of the country like a lot of MAGA hats there Mm -hmm. and um yeah I mean it worries me that uh this movement um as eternal as it is has so much kind of adaptability um Mm -hmm. to to be able to do that
1: and and i think the adaptability piece is the piece that often people don't recognize yeah is that you know one of the things that i would tell my students is that white supremacists have been remarkably good at navigating different social systems different technology that they know that their message can be malleable and they can shift it, you know, like as soon as there was an internet stormfront, which is a white supremacist site that no longer exists was there, Mm -hmm. you know? And so like they are able to adapt and change and change these symbols and use different symbols and do this, um, in a super quick way. Um, and I think that makes it harder to kind of parse, right. And figure out too. Um, And it really helps, again, when it's something that doesn't seem like it should be a symbol of hate, right? Like a red hat, you know, or something like that. Um, And I think that makes it harder to pin down because there's a certain way that someone wearing it could claim deniability, right? Like right they're just a trump supporter that doesn't mean that this is a white supremacist symbol and it's like well well it's because of their economic
0: know. anxieties yeah that's exactly right
1: that's what's going on here um are they just like red hats who knows but yeah but i think there's a way in which um it gives them a path that like a white robe and hood doesn't you know like because yeah. that is i think the symbol in so many people's minds of what racism and a white supremacist looks like and It shouldn't be you know like there's a way in which we need to get away from that so that yeah that has that historical legacy, but other objects and artifacts and clothing and these sorts of things are also those kinds of symbols right. Um, And today, especially it's definitely not the clan robe all the time it's these other things.
0: Um, okay. So before I let you go, um, yeah, you said you're, you try to be an optimist. Um, <laughs> we've both been kind of a bummer <laughs> the last hour I know, or so, I know. Uh, <laughs> is, can you think of any reason why we should have, uh, optimism about, uh, I don't know anything, uh, but, but white supremacy oh, in America being one of them. I don't know.
1: Yeah. I, it's, so it's really tough. Right. Um, I think One of the things I try to keep in mind when I think about my historical research is that by the time the Klan was reacting to what they saw as threats to America, right, like increased diversity um, in religion, um, in race and ethnicity, right, of who an American was, these sorts of things. By the time they reacted, like, some of these changes were already there. Right. So their reaction was too late, right? right. Um, right. That they, like, their so-called enemies, they couldn't defeat them because, like, the terrain had already changed. Before right, they, they always lose.
0: It. Right, yeah. Right, they always
1: <laughs> lose. And so one of the things that, um, so that kind of gives me some amount of hope, right, that what we're seeing... What we saw with Trumpism and what we're seeing now, um, you know, doesn't have to be the way it always is because some of these changes have already happened. Right. Um, and it's clear to me too, that the Biden administration is trying to undo things that the Trump administration had done. Um, and, you know, that makes me feel a little bit better. I wish they'd move a little bit faster, but like, <laughs> you know, um, I'm sure that president Biden really cares about what I think about things. Um, but, um, But I think that, so I think that is at least useful to me, right? Um, And the other thing that I think has made me hopeful um, since the 2016 election is the amount of activism to protect the rights um, and opportunities um, of different people, right? So that you see folks that are not letting these things, people getting away with these, right, um, different things. So that mass protests at airports, right? Right. rallies um you know uh money that folks are giving to help um you know kids who are stuck right in these mm-hmm. detention centers still mm-hmm. these sorts of things so i think that i find to be i find to give me hope right at the same time that i'm like hey crimes keep going up right like <laughs> like the number of like this is so that so that's the balance right is that some of this reactionary stuff still is so violent so we can't like let that go either you know um so there are glimpses of hope I think here um but yeah I feel like Pretty much from 2016 on, my desire to be optimistic about humanity like gets whittled away a little bit. You know, like I'm I'm still mostly there because I think I have to be doing the kind of work that I do. You know, Um, that I have to hope that things can actually get better. Or like, why would I spend all this time doing this kind of stuff? Um, But yeah, it's just it gets harder. But I do, but I do think that like. It's not all bad, which is maybe the best we can hope for right now.
0: I think that's fair. All right, I'll 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 take that tiny that tiny glimmer. Um, if if people want to find more about you or interact with you on the internet, um, where where should they go?
1: Oh, they should go to Twitter. I'm always on Twitter. Yeah, um, that's true. I can say. Yeah. No, I am. No, it's,
0: it's, it's a, yeah. It's yeah. It's
1: a problem. Um, so, yeah. So I'm pretty easy to find on Twitter. Um, I have a website that is just my name. It's kellyjbaker.com um, that has stuff about my writing and those sorts of things. But, I mean, primarily the exciting things happen on Twitter. Um, so <laughs> that's the best way to interact, I think.
0: Well, Kelly, thank you so much for um, taking some time today. It's been... Um... I'm not going to say fun, but it's been very interesting and, and uh, enlightening for sure. And I've, I've, I've really enjoyed it. So thanks.
1: Well, I appreciate you having me. And I hope we don't bum out your listeners too much.
0: Don't be bummed out. Okay. <laughs> listeners. <laughs> we'll see you next week. Some goes that forces For the
2: same that work